1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved, in which you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because they persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we hoped in Christ in this life only, We are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Be seated, please. Last week, as we've been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, we began chapter 15 last week. And we saw that the gospel that was preached by Jesus Christ, by the apostles, and by every faithful preacher down through the ages, emphasizes two fundamental truths. And thereby, there are two commands that flow out of this. The two truths that constitute the essence and the content of the gospel message are this. Jesus, crucified, dead, and buried. Secondly, well, without that shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then secondly, the other truth is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Those two truths constitute the essence of the gospel message. It's what Jesus preached, it's what the apostles preached, and every other faithful preacher has preached. It's the old time gospel, as I call it. And sadly, it's not consistently proclaimed today as the only gospel. And brethren, it is the only gospel that can save your soul. To be a Christian, we saw last week, uh, is, first of all, not to believe in vain. Our text tells us there are, it is possible to believe in vain. Be sure you don't believe in vain. 
How do you how do you know if you don't believe in vain? Well, first of all, do you believe in your heart that Jesus is crucified? Do you believe in your heart that you're a sinner deserving of his wrath and without hope in his sovereign mercy? Do you really believe that? If you don't believe that, you can't be a Christian. Secondly, we saw from the text of Scripture in Romans 10 that unless you believe that Jesus Christ literally, bodily rose from the dead, you can't be a Christian either. And then we saw that if you really do believe those things, you are justified. And if you're justified, your life will show a difference. You will bear fruit. Jesus says that you will bear fruit and thereby prove that you're my disciples. John 15:8. And in that way, we don't believe in vain. What are the two commands that Jesus is the one who told us first what the two divine commands are in light of this message? The two divine commands in light of Christ died for our sins and being raised from the dead for our justification is repent of your sins and believe that he has been raised from the dead. Believe in him. Repent and believe. Those are the two commands of Scripture. We saw that as important as eyewitness testimony is, as we saw in the Old Testament, every fact is confirmed uh, by the testimony of two or more witnesses, if they are accurate uh, testimonies. He appeared, we're told in the scripture here, to over 500 at one time. And Paul and the others said we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But there is a more sure word, and that is what the Scriptures say, and not just what we experience with our eyes and what we see. We saw last week that Jesus rebuked his disciples for what? For not believing what the Scriptures had said. He says, was it not written that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory? It was written, he says, O foolish men, slow to understand what the Scripture has said. The Scripture is the basis for our hope, not our personal experience. What we need to understand today is that the, the death of Christ is absolutely meaningless without the resurrection of the Lord Christ. This is why the gospel message is a twofold message. You've got to have both parts in order to have the gospel. You have to have Jesus crucified, but you have to have together with it Jesus raised from the dead. There is no gospel without both. You have to have both. Without the resurrection, we're told, there is no hope at all. And the focus of our passage today is verses 11 through 22. Now, what does he say here? The apostle says that the gospel must be preached. You know, there's a difference between preaching and entertainment. There's a difference in man uh, preaching and man-centered worship. And there is nothing archaic, there's nothing outmoded about someone standing up in the, with the Scriptures and proclaiming the Scriptures. 
That's how it was done for thousands of years. And that's how God has saved people. We don't need to have uh, clever entertainment ploys. You don't have to have skits. You don't have to have PowerPoint presentations and the like. Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. And the apostles came preaching the gospel. And all others have come preaching this simple gospel. Jesus crucified and raised from the dead. You know, Jesus came preaching, and the scripture abundantly testifies to us that he has empowered his little ones. Remember, Matthew 10 refers to all preachers as Jesus' little ones. That's to keep us humble. His little ones who have preached down through the ages And you know that men's destinies are determined how they respond to the preaching of Jesus' little ones. The worst sin in the world. And we have said in our catechisms, we have recognized that there are some sins more heinous than others. Do you know what the most heinous sin in all of the world is? This. To hear one of Jesus' little ones preach this gospel and refuse to believe and to repent. That is the worst sin Jesus says you could commit. He says those who hear or heard his little ones preach and did not respond, he says, shake off the dust from your feet. Verily I say unto you that Sodom and Gomorrah, that corrupt culture, that homosexual corrupt, corrupt culture, they will be beaten with fewer stripes than those who heard your words and says, I don't want this Jesus. The greatest sin any man can ever commit is to deliberately refuse the gospel when it's presented to them. Paul has established the nature of the gospel. And so he says, we preach this. And you have believed. That's what verse 11 says. Revival will come to America again when the gospel, in its purity and its simplicity, is preached again from pulpits all over this country. Jesus crucified, dead and buried, and risen from the dead. That simple message was that is faithfully proclaimed again, then you will see God move in a mighty way among us. You know, we get this idea that we must come up with elaborate ideas to draw people in. When the Bible simply says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the dunamis of God. The Greek word there, dunamis, the dynamite of God. It's where we derive the word dynamite. And that word is translated power. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the emphasis of our text today in verses 11 through 22 is upon the necessity of the resurrection. The glory and the necessity of the resurrection put forth powerfully here in this text of Scripture. Paul says there was a problem in Corinth that there were some false teachers who were saying There in verse 12, 
that there was uh, no resurrection of the dead at all. He said, some of you are teaching this. By the way, in verse 33 of chapter 15, we haven't gotten to it yet. But when it says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals, that well-known verse actually is in the context of false teachers with reference to the resurrection. What he is saying there is hanging around those who teach that there is no resurrection is keeping bad company. And so what Paul is doing here in this portion of Scripture is saying, if there is no resurrection from the dead, here is what the implication is. In Israel, the Sadducees were a sect of people that did not believe in any kind of resurrection. We saw last week how Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 29, says to the Sadducees, You err because you do not understand the Scriptures nor the power of God. See where Jesus went? Your error is that you don't know the Bible. And your error is you, you deny the power of God. Is there anything that the Almighty God cannot do? Is it too hard for God to raise someone from the dead? Of course not. We see here that Corinth was a city in Achaia, which in modern uh, geography is in the southern part of Greece. Corinth was only 43 miles from the great city of, of Athens. And in Acts 17, we are recorded Paul's journey to Athens and his preaching in the Areopagus there in Athens. Paul comes to this center. Now, Athens was the intellectual, if we may say, giant of the ancient world at that time. All the Greek philosophers that had ever come through Athens. And it was a very common practice for the philosophers to gather in a place called the Areopagus. And debate, and to debate the latest philosophy. We're told there in Acts 17 that the Apostle Paul comes to the Areopagus, and there we're told there's the uh, Epicurean philosophers, the Stoic philosophers, and they would debate. And here comes this man, Paul. And what does he do? Preaching this Jesus risen from the dead. Now what kind of impact did that have immediately? Many of them just laughed him out. They were mocking him. It wasn't very intellectual. And they had this idea. One thing here is, though the Epicureans and the Stoics disagreed on many things, one thing they did agree on. Nobody rises from the dead. There is no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. They both agreed on that. And so when this man Paul comes preaching, a man risen from the dead? Are you kidding? You know what they called him? An idle babbler. They referred to him as a pseudo-philosopher. The vernacular refers to it as scrap philosophy. I mean, it's not even worth talking about. You, Paul, with this man raised from the dead? How did that affect Paul? Did Paul say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm not as scholarly as you got. 
I'm sorry I'm not the intelligentsia as you guys are. However, Paul was probably one of the most intelligent men in the ancient world. Studied under the famous Gamaliel. Paul knew all of their philosophies. But when they rejected his preaching of Christ, did that affect them? Well, turn with me to see what Paul did. Turn to Acts 17 and take a look at verses 30. To 34. Now, this is in light of the fact they have mocked him and called him a pseudo-philosopher, an idle babbler. Here's what he says to them anyway. Verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we'll have to hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Paul wasn't intimidated by these philosophers, even though they did not believe that men rise from the dead, he still preached Jesus risen from the dead, and that these men who mock this idea are going to stand before this man Jesus one day who will judge them. He's not intimidated at all. He will preach the truth. No matter what, because it's the truth. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. There were some who sneered, it says. Others will say, that seems to be interesting. We'll, we'll hear you more. And guess what? Some believed. How? Because the power of God through that gospel message came to them. And so we see here, <clears throat> turning to our text, turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, for the sake of argument, grants the opposers of the resurrection their basic premise that nobody, there is no such thing as a resurrection. And in granting them that premise, he then says, all right, if that is true, here's what is the implication. And it is profound, the implication. If no men are raised at all, then first of all, he says, that means Jesus being a man, he wasn't raised from the dead. If nobody rises, then Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there are some very serious implications of that. No resurrection, there is no gospel. And there is no faith, and there is no hope. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's the implication. The basis for all preaching is Christ's resurrection. Without the resurrection, preaching is meaningless. It's useless. After all, look what verse 14 says in our text. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Christ's resurrection is the ultimate game changer. It means everything 
It changed everything. The resurrection is what makes preaching of such importance. Without the resurrection, preaching means nothing. It's a, it's a futile exercise. But if, it, if Christ is raised, it's no longer a futile exercise. It means everything. Brethren, a dead Savior can't save you. He's really no Savior at all. A dead Savior in, is no Savior in reality. He can't save you. He can't empower you. He can't sustain you in the trials of life. Uh, you're all by yourself if there is no resurrected Jesus. Imagine that. What a miserable state that would be if we're all by ourselves, having to go through this life all by yourself. Verses 15 and 16 says, If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then we as preachers are a bunch of liars. Then the apostles, when they preach Jesus raised from the dead, they're lying. And the atoning death of Jesus is of no value whatsoever. If Jesus isn't Raised from the dead, what does he say? Verse 17, you were still in your sins. You're still in your sins if Jesus isn't risen. You know, in this regard, this means that the gospel demands these two fundamental aspects of repentance and faith in Jesus. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, it says that the atoning death of Jesus is useless. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, your faith is vain. You are still, still in your sins. Meaning you're going to hell if Jesus isn't risen from the dead. You see, if there's no resurrection, there's no ascension of Jesus. And if there's no ascension of Jesus, there's no sitting of Jesus at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now is there, if he didn't rise from the dead. These three great truths are always normally seen together in many respects. The, the, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the official seating at the right hand, referred to as the coronation of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Without a resurrection, there is no mighty king. There is no Jehovah Sabaoth that Matthew 28, uh, 20 refers to Jesus as. He is, there are many names of God in the Bible. And one of the great names listed in the Great Commission is Jehovah Sabaoth, meaning the warrior of Israel. That's what that, that means. The warrior of Israel. The captain of the hosts of the Lord that goes forth decimating his enemies before him. That's the name that Jesus is illuminating us with here that's behind his disciples and going forth. You know, there is, without this mighty king, there is no gospel message. You know, in this... As the Lord Sabaoth, turn with me to Isaiah 63. It's one of our great hymns. Isaiah, based on Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4. 
Who is this that comes from Edom? Well, who is this that comes from Edom? Take a look. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. Jesus is the one prophesied here who comes from Edom. Mighty to save. There are two ways you can destroy your enemies. You can destroy your enemies physically, and Jesus will do that if necessary. But really, the, 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 the most prominent way that Jesus destroys his enemies is how that imagery conveyed in Revelation 19, Isaiah 11, where it says that there's a sword coming out of his mouth by which he smites the nations with this sword coming out of his mouth. Or it says he breathes upon the nations and slays them. Well, how does he do that? By converting them. His word comes with power. Did not Isaiah say that this one who comes from Edom is coming mighty to save, having redemption? Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Romans 1, verse 4. Talking about Jesus, it says, He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We need to recognize that the resurrection did not make Jesus divine. He was already divine. He was already the Son of God. What does the text say? It declared Him to be the Son of God with power. With power. That's what the resurrection demonstrated. This is no ordinary man. This is the Son of God who has power to save. How does one, we've already mentioned this. How does Romans 1.16 convey the gospel? It is the dunamis. It is the dynamite of God. It is the very power of God. And salvation comes because God comes, Jesus comes in his gospel with mighty power to save sinners. Last week we took a look at Isaiah 64, did we not? Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There are none who do good. Those righteous. And it says our iniquities have carried us away like the wind. And then it says no one arouses himself to take hold of thee, O God. You can't save yourself. That's the point. There's no good thing you could ever do. Your iniquities have carried you away. You can't reach out with this hand for Jesus in yourself. You have to... You have to have God come to you in saving power. 
through the gospel. I'll never forget when I was teaching Bible at Chalcedon Christian School many years ago. I told you, I think I've told you this story. I'll tell it again briefly. I had a seventh grade Bible class. I taught seventh through the twelfth grade Bible. Basically taught them the same, but just would take into consideration the age group. And I was <clears throat> teaching on the nature of sin and our depravity, driving it home, and I'll never forget as it got to a point, this this young girl on the front row was a seventh grader, and she raised her hand and she was in near tears. She says, Mr. Obvious, what hope is there for us then? I said, my dear young lady, you understand, don't you? Without Jesus, you have no hope. But with Jesus, you have everything, dear one. Now you understand. The gospel comes with mighty power to save. It is the power of God. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 23. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, And here's the key, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How important is the resurrection? You have no hope of your calling. You have no hope of an inheritance. You have no hope of any power to do anything in your life if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. But because he was raised from the dead, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the Lord of glory. He is the mighty King. And he is reigning, dispensing that power through his little ones who preach that simple gospel. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen does say that without a risen Christ, your faith is worthless. You're yet in your sins. Now, one might think, why couldn't it be that Jesus could still die as a substitute for sinners, pay the price for their rebellion, but still be dead? Isn't that good enough? I mean, he did a great thing by paying the price for you. But that's not how the Bible presents salvation. The text in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen definitely implies that the death of Jesus is worthless without a resurrection. And that is correct. Our faith is our, we are yet in our sins without a resurrected Jesus. So this is how God has ordained the salvation of men. An atoning death has merit only if the one who is making the atoning death 
is risen from the dead. Then only is it meaningful. I'm going to prove that to you scripturally. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Take a look at verses 1 through 6. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also has something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. The throne of God and the sanctuary bring the king and the priest into one place where the kingly priest's work is of value. That's what the new covenant is all about. Jesus is the high priest who brings his atoning death and his efficacy, his power, and presents it to the throne room, the very holy of holies of the living God. And it says, he, Jesus, is ministering right now. You get that? Right now, Jesus is ministering in the Holy of Holies on whose behalf? Our behalf. Our behalf. He's offering gifts to us as a high priest. It's marvelous. And his, this high priest, Jesus, serves in the sanctuary for the interest of his people. Hallelujah. Without a resurrection, there is no one in the Holy of Holies ministering for us. That's how important the resurrection is. You need to understand that Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, not of the order of Aaron, the Levitical priests. Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus is like Melchizedek, who Abraham bowed to and gave gifts to. And what was unique about Melchizedek? He was a king and a priest. And therefore, Jesus is like Melchizedek, a priest and a king at the same time. And you see, to be a king that can make a difference, you have to be alive. The difference in Jesus as a king, he's alive. He's alive is your king, fighting on your behalf, defeating all his and your enemies. That's what he's doing. If there is no resurrection from the dead, there is no ministering in the tabernacle on our behalf. There would be no gifts dispensed to men on our behalf. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verses 7 through 11. 
But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, and all the other gifts that are implied there as well. If there is no resurrection, there is no high priest Jesus dispensing gifts to man. But because he is raised from the dead, he is the kingly priest. He is, he has taken his atoning sacrifice and made it of great value to us and then turns around and then through his preachers, his little ones, preaches through them because Romans says he preaches through his preachers. And no man's preaching can do you any good, but Jesus' preaching can save you. And praise the Lord that when you have faithful human preachers who preach the Word of God, you do hear Jesus preach. And you do see the dunamis of God coming with great power to save sinners. Did not Jesus in his high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane say that he says, and he was praying there, he says, I'm not asking, Father, on behalf of these apostles only. The text says, I am praying for those who will believe in me through their word. I'm praying for those. Jesus is praying for you right now. And one of the prayers of John 17, 15 states that he is praying. In John 17, 15, he is praying right now what he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, Father, keep them from the evil one. I'm not asking you that you take them out of the world. I'm asking you that you keep them in the world, but you keep them from the evil one. And that's what Jesus is doing. You remember when, Jesus, when Peter was saying that he would never betray Jesus? And Jesus would betray him, and Jesus would go to the cross. But Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you, Peter. And when you're restored, go... Go uh, comfort and feed my lambs. Comfort your brothers. None of that would be true if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. It's all because of the resurrection. Not only is the kingly priest praying for you, but as a high priest, you know what he's doing? He's taking your prayers and he offers them to the Father in the throne room of God. Think of that imagery for a moment. In fact, I'll take you to that imagery in Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation 5. Look at Revelation 5, verses 8 through 10. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Get that? The throne room of God. 
the 24 elders representing the church of all of the ages. And it says they have these golden bowls. It's an imagery full of incense. Remember, our prayers are like incense into the nostrils of God. And it says they are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Remember in in Romans 15.30, Paul says to the Roman church, he says, I want you to agonize with me in your prayers for me. And we've discussed that before. That word there is agonizomai. Agonize. As an athlete agonizes to gain the victory. He says, agonize with me in your prayers. Get that. Your prayers for me. You know, when the Lord first really illumined my eyes to the truth of that passage, I really understood the significance of prayer in a a greater way and I realized just how important it is to pray for missionaries. To pray not only for preachers, but for missionaries. Because you know what? When you're praying for them, in a spiritual sense, here's what the Scripture says. You are out there with them spiritually, fighting the battle with them through your prayers. Now, if that doesn't change your view of missions, I don't know what will. You're fighting the fight with them, wherever they are, through your prayers. And so... This imagery of, the, of the, the bowl being filled with the prayers of the saints being presented to God. Jesus. That None of that would be true if Jesus, as your high priest, isn't raised from the dead and is doing it. It's the Lamb of God who has the authority here. Take away the resurrection of Jesus, and none of this is true. Without the resurrection, your faith is worthless. You are yet in your sins. Take a look with me at Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 15. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself, without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, you are yet in your sins. You see, this passage conclusively demonstrates to us that he goes before the very presence of God with his atoning blood, and with it cleanses all of our consciences, when he goes to regenerate you. All this is when he regenerates your dead and soul. There would be no regeneration of your dead and soul 
by the power of the risen Christ if he was not risen. You see, in this regard, the soul, our text says that we are still in our sins if he's not raised. What was the penalty assessed for Adam's transgression, does the scripture say? Death. Death is the penalty. And the soul that sins must die, says the scripture. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, as verses 18 and 19 tell us, there is no hope, there is no inheritance. One of the comforting things about the resurrection of Jesus is that it was meant to be comforting to the people of God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4. Not 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm sorry. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. See, the resurrection of of Christ was meant to be a comforting doctrine to the church. Those friends of yours, those loved ones of yours who are Christians, you will see them again. I don't know what context that will be, but you will see them again. They haven't died in vain. There is hope. Jesus comforted Mary and Martha with the death of their brother, Lazarus. Now, he's going to do something in 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 a marvelous way. To ultimately teach them about the resurrection that he has on his power. And so he deliberately waits for Lazarus to die. It was a deliberate action of him waiting so that his good friend would die. And then when he gets there to Bethany, you have the people crying. You have Mary and Martha crying over their brother. They said, Jesus, he's your friend if you'd only been here. And Jesus said, remember to Martha, These magnificent words. I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me shall live, even if they die. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? She did. She already testified that he would rise on that great day. But if only you'd been here, Jesus. And that's the shortest verse. Jesus wept. And then performed the greatest miracle anyone had ever seen. Proving that he is the Son of God. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. And if he can raise Lazarus from the dead, he can raise every one of us from the dead. And will who believe in him. But if he's not risen from the dead himself, he can do nothing. That's how important the resurrection is. Before we conclude today, we've got to talk about, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 20-22. After taking this negative position of all the terrible things that would be true if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead... He affirms in a very emphatic way in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. 
No, even here, the Greek verb gives us this glory about the resurrection. The, the verb has been raised there in verse 20. In the Greek, it's the perfect tense. And then the perfect tense in Greek means this. It conveys something that has happened in the past, but the effect of that which has happened in the past continues into the present. Meaning, so what you say, what, so? He has been raised, meaning he was definitively raised at one point thousands of years ago, but his resurrection still has continuing value because he's ministering to us in the very throne room of the living God, seated at the right hand of the Father. When it says that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead, it's not saying that he is the first person to ever rise. That's not what it's meaning. When it says he's the first fruits of the dead, from the dead, it's meaning that it is conveying his representative nature in ministry. So when it says that Jesus is the first fruits, Jesus' resurrection is the pledge, yea, it is the assurance that you and I are going to rise from the dead too. That's what it means. The theology of first fruits is this. The first fruit was always given to God as a thanksgiving, as an offering, as a pledge, an assurance of what? The gathering of the whole harvest. And what the Bible tells us, Jesus was the first to rise only to prove it's just the beginning of something incredible. We all are going to rise with it. We believe in him. It's the first fruit. Jesus assures us that we will rise. Turn with me to Romans 6. Look at verses 4 through 11. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know what gives you hope to get through uh, this life? And you, I trust you painfully know, even as a Christian, you fall short. But Jesus is risen from the dead to give you aid. To give you the power of the Holy Spirit. So you can live a holy life, not in your own strength, so that sin might not be master over you. None of that would be true if he's not raised from the dead. Only a risen Savior can render you aid to live a holy life. So without Christ's resurrection, 
You can't do anything to please God. See how important it is? See why Paul says, without the resurrection, your faith is, is worthless? You're still in your sins? Romans 4.25 says that Jesus died for our offenses and was raised for our justification. In our text, in 1 Corinthians 15.21 and 22, it says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ shall all be made alive. What this teaches is the representative nature of both Adam and Jesus. It's why Jesus is called the second Adam in Romans 5. The first Adam was given a command. He was given the law of God, which demanded what? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That's what was demanded of Adam and Eve. Personal, perfect, and perpetual. You couldn't foul up one time, and if you fouled up one time, it was over. And when they blew it in the Garden of Eden, it was over. The soul that sinned shall die. And Adam's failure in the Garden brought sin and misery into the human race. He was, your cha- he was our champion. That's what a representative is. You've watched the movies of the medieval times when they got their champions that fight for others. That's a very, that's a poor analogy, something wonderful like this. But he is our, Adam was our representative head. And you were there. I was there. Every one of us was there, and we blew it in Adam. You might say, well, you know what? I wouldn't have blown it if I'd really been there, really. Well, not only was he our representative head, the Bible says you have inherited, we all have inherited a sinful nature through him. So it's a double whammy is what it is. We sin in him as our representative head, and we sin in him because we're sinners. And what's the result? Death. Because God says, you have to give me personal, perfect and perpetual obedience. That's why James says, if you have offended God in one point of the law, you have offended Him in all points of the law. James 2.10 We all have sinned. We all have blown it. But hallelujah, Jesus, the second Adam, kept the law perfectly, personally, perfectly, And perpetually, he did it all. And because he did it all, he won for us eternal life as the second Adam. I conclude with this. Jesus told his disciples before he ascended, he said in John 14, 26, he says, I'm going to send you the comforter. I will send you the comforter. And then in John, just turn to John 16. And then in John 16, 7, he says this, But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
You might be thinking, wouldn't it have been wonderful to have walked with Jesus in the days with his apostles? Brethren, I want you to understand this fully. It is more glorious, the position we are in now, than what the disciples were in before. Because Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go away, I'm going to send you the Comforter. I'm going to send you the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. Now, when He says, I go away, if He's not raised from the dead, can He send you the Spirit? No. Is there any power to live a Christian life? No. Is there anybody being subdued to the glory of God or the nations bowing their knees to King Jesus if He's not raised? No. But if He is raised from the dead, it's all true. And the glorious thing is this. Take a look at John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The fact that Jesus is raised, he is in heaven preparing this glorious place for us. He's empowering us. He saved you by his power. And he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to get you. I'm going to, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to bring you home on that great and glorious day. And it's all because of the old gospel. Jesus, crucified, dead, and buried, and risen the third day. That is the gospel. That is the gospel that must reclaim this country. That is the gospel that will reclaim the world. That is what we must preach. Let us pray.